0: Have you ever experienced the fickleness of people loving you one day, hating you the next? I I enjoy history. I think most of you realize that. And it's not so much because of the dates. It's more about looking at people's lives and seeing what is it that makes somebody impactful? What is it that makes somebody dangerous? If you have read any biography from the last century, my guess is near the top of that list would be a man by the name of Winston Churchill. I, I didn't realize that till just this week, but Winston Churchill actually had an American mother and a British father. He rose into politics early in life, and by World War I, he was taking a, an important place where he bungled an attempt to open a second front in Turkey and was largely kicked out of politics until the 30s. As Hitler was gaining ground in Europe, and as the British roiling forces wanted to make peace rather than stand for good, Neville Chamberlain came back with a piece of paper saying, we've obtained peace in our time, and yet it wasn't but a few days, and Hitler would invade first Poland, and then when France fell, Chamberlain resigned, and Winston Churchill stepped in. Most historians would tell you that it was Winston Churchill's ability to go to the people through the power of his words to sway them. He refused to leave London during the battle for Britain. As the bombs raged, he was there encouraging people to never, never, never give in. In fact, I think you could credit Churchill as much as anyone with the victory in Europe. And on May 8th, 1945, Winston Churchill stood victorious. Two months later, Britain went to the ballot box and decided, we don't want that bum. Churchill was voted out before the war in the Pacific ended. On July 5th, 1945, he was just a has-been. At least they didn't say crucify him. This year, as we're looking at Easter, we've gone through, in the 25 years I've been here, every single gospel account of the Easter story. We've looked at it from Paul's perspective. We've looked at it from all of the gospel's perspective. This Easter, I want to go back to Luke. And one of the reasons I want to go back to Luke is Luke presents some of the story that no one else does. In fact, I think one of the parts of the Easter story that we don't give a lot of time to is the ascension of Christ, and only Luke shares that with us. So this Easter, for the next three Sundays, we're going to be in Luke, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 19, but, but let me just give you a bit of background, the 30-second summary of the Gospel of Luke. The first nine chapters, Luke paints Jesus through his first two and a half years of ministry, all of the miracles, the messages, the, the acts that he would do, and then in chapter nine, he takes his disciples clear to the north. Most of Israel is hot and dry and arid, but up to the north, around Caesarea Philippi, it's it tends to be cooler and jesus if you will goes on a weekend retreat and there he asks his disciples who do the people say that i am and they come out with all of these answers some say you're john the baptist raised from the dead others say you're the prophet and then he asks them the single most important question anyone will ever answer who do you say jesus is and in that moment of clarity peter says thou art the christ You are the one that all of the Old Testament has promised would come. You are the one that all of humanity has been looking for. You are Messiah. And the entire book shifts. Jesus warns his disciples, don't tell anybody I'm Messiah. And I want you to know, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And then on the third day, be raised. For the first time in Luke's gospel, he shares with us the prediction that Jesus would die. For the next 10 chapters, it would be worth our time to go back and walk through those 10 chapters. We simply don't have time. But as you come to chapter 18, you see that Jesus is in the midst of, of an amazing event. He finds himself in the city of Jericho. Jericho is about 3,500 feet below the level of Jerusalem. And he begins this long walk to the city. And as he does, there's these amazing stories. The, the first is the story Jesus tells about this tax collector and the publican as they go into the, the temple. Then there's this story that the disciples are saying, And Jesus is too busy for kids. And yet, in the midst of all that's going on, Jesus still had time for the little children. Then he has this rich young ruler who comes up to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what is the law to man? And he says, I've done all of that. And he says, well, then go ahead and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And he says, I own too much. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, i.e. impossible, than for a rich man to get into heaven. But God specializes on the impossible. He then moves to one of his incredible miracles. If you go back to the Old Testament, you will find some amazing miracles. Moses parts the Red Sea. He brings plagues down upon Egypt. He brings water out of a rock. He feeds the multitude for 40 years. Elisha heals the sick and even raises the dead. But there's one miracle nobody in the Old Testament ever did. They never gave sight to a blind man. And Jesus' final miracle before he enters the city of Jerusalem is to fulfill all of the prophecies Isaiah and others would make of him, is that he could give sight to the blind. And then we come to chapter 19. And chapter 19 is this story that I would love to have spent the entire morning on, and maybe we should have. It's that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he... He wanted to see the Lord, so he climbed up the sycamore tree. No, I'm not going to sing for you, which is a good thing for you. But Zacchaeus is called, in verse number two, the chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector. He was the tax collector of tax collectors. He was a traitor against Jerusalem. He was a, a traitor to his people. He used the power of the Roman army to gain wealth, and they hated him. But as the story ends, Jesus says, today salvation has come to the Lord because this man too. And I was so tempted to run after this rabbit. I don't have time. But if you've been with us when we went through the book of Romans, Paul goes out of his way to express that just because you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a son of Abraham. Simply because you are of the lineage and the heritage of Abraham doesn't mean you're a true Jew. And Paul in chapter 2 and in chapter 9 returns to it that it is what's in your heart. And Jesus declares, this is the son of Abraham. And then he summarizes his entire mission. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to seek you and me if we're willing to admit we're lost. And with that, we come to verse number 28 of Luke 19 and I'd like
1: Lumo to read it for you. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation.
0: For the few moments we have this morning, I just want to contemplate two thoughts, the arrival of the king, and then in a few minutes, the weeping of the king. I know that this is an incredibly familiar story, and I fear sometimes it's easy for me, I don't want to condemn you, but it's easy for me to run past the details. Oh, I know. He sent the disciples into the village to find this cult. Why? Why a cult? Why did Jesus send disciples? Why didn't he bring it? Why did he have to arrive on a colt at all? Okay, Matthew's going to tell us uh, it's simply so the prophecy he found in Zechariah would be fulfilled that the Messiah would come and when he did, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, Jesus is fulfilling the messianic prophecy. But put yourself in the owner. I, I, I don't know what it would have been like. So let me try and conceptualize it to our day. You're leaving church this morning, two people you've never met before get into your vehicle, somehow have the keys, start it up, and they start driving off. And you say, Hey, buddy, what are you doing? And they say, The Lord needs it. (laughs) What are you going to say? See, I I think we have this sense that, oh, a donkey's no big deal. In the first century, it was incredibly expensive. You didn't just give away a donkey. You just didn't say, ah, no problem. Let the Lord have it. If it gets back to me, great. If it does, then I'm okay with that too. This was a pretty strange thing. And and how did Jesus know where the donkey was going to be? How did he know that this donkey hadn't been ridden? I, in full disclosure, have never attempted to break any animal let alone a donkey. So I asked a couple people this morning if they had ever broken a donkey and they both told me no. And so I don't know what's involved in breaking a donkey. But why doesn't this donkey buck when Jesus gets on it? I am convinced that it is all for everyone to understand that this is not a normal entrance to Jerusalem. This is not a normal man sitting on the donkey. This is in fact the creator of the donkey. He, he arrives to, to people waving branches. I know it's called Palm Sunday, but do you know why? If you read Luke's account, he doesn't mention branches. If you read Matthew Mark's account, they will share that there were branches being waved. It is only John who will share that it is a palm branch. And, and it's an interesting study... The best illustration I can come up with for us is a palm branch in the first century for the Jews was probably similar to our waving an American flag. In just a couple weeks we have Memorial Day. My guess is if you drive down this street you will see all along the cemetery American flags. There's a certain patriotic excitement about seeing the stars and stripes waving. That is what the palm branch meant to the first century Jews which opens a whole amazing question. The Romans were relatively hospitable landlords as long as they never sensed that you were trying to rebel. But the moment they got even the sense that That you were rebelling they came down with such ferocity that few empires have ever mustered why do the roman guards allow them to wave palm branches because they weren't in charge that's why they thought they were but they weren't and why palm branches now i don't know that i can fully defend this comment but let me try we don't know for sure when all of the gospels were written matthew mark and luke were written probably around in the 50s a.d the gospel of john by almost all accounts was written much later and john wrote five books three letters the gospel of john and the book of revelation in what order we don't know some would speculate that the gospel of john was the final book he wrote and part of that speculation comes to this very story Because if I could take you to to Revelation chapter 7, John is now in the very throne room of heaven. He's witnessing this amazing event. He says, and I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. If you go to Revelation 2 and 3, you'll find that the churches, once they are talked about, they are talked about as being in heaven wearing white robes. I think he's talking about believers And as he saw these white robes, they were holding in their hands palm branches. Could it be that John, as he writes his gospel, is remembering what he has already seen in heaven? That there's coming a day when the mass of Christianity will grab a palm branch and wave it at our king. They're waving palm branches and they're throwing down cloaks. Now, I'm guessing you probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I-, I want you to, just for a second. You go to a parade, and somebody gets on a donkey, and your inclination is to take off your cloak. Okay, I, I get to putting it on the donkey. That makes sense. It's a new donkey. They probably didn't have a saddle. All right, I- I'll give you my coat to sit on. Palestine was not exactly known as a clean place. And if you are having a donkey walking over your cloak, donkeys tend to leave presents behind them, likely in your coat. And if you own one coat, why in the world would you put your coat on the ground for the donkey to walk and mess on? It was a symbol that dates back years before in which it said, If possible, I would lay down and let you walk on me, but I don't want to hurt the animal, so I am symbolically throwing my coat down, saying, I am falling before you in absolute humility. You are my king. It wasn't an empty act. It was an incredibly significant act in which they're throwing down their cloaks and they're shouting, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" That last phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, does that make you think of any other story Luke shares? Maybe a story when the sky is filled with angels, and they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace? I don't know if that is exactly what they're referring back to, but this whole idea As the Jews would go to the city of Jerusalem three times a year, they had pilgrimage feasts. They had to go for the Feast of Passover. They had to go for the Feast of Pentecost. They had to go for the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they would ascend, Jerusalem is one of the high points in the the land of Israel. They would go up to Jerusalem. And so they had these psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that they would call Psalms of Ascent. And as they were traveling, sometimes three days to get there, they would sing these psalms. Psalm 118 As blessed is he. But they change the words. They are so convinced that Jesus is king. They don't say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rather, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I can't describe strongly enough the excitement that would have filled the city. I appreciate LUMO. They do a great job. They obviously don't have unlimited budgets. Josephus would suggest that at a normal Passover in the first century, there would be about 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem. I suspect there wasn't a few dozen, but there were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands lining the streets and shouting at the top of their voices, blessed is the king who comes In the name of the Lord. And as Jesus arrives, the teachers stop him. They say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In the defense of the Pharisees, they had heard stories and probably had witnessed what happens when Rome gets the the hint that you are rebelling. Rebelling. You can go back and read accounts of, uh, of the, the army coming in and crucifying everybody they can find to make a point. You don't rebel against Rome. And the Pharisees undoubtedly are thinking, Jesus, you needed to stop something before the Romans come. Maybe they were thinking, you need to stop before I lose my authority. And Jesus' response is, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the storms will cry out. I had the incredible privilege of going to Israel in 2009, and the geography really does play a fairly significant role in this story. If I can draw my map, if you can see down on the very bottom, it was 700 feet below sea level is where Jericho is. It's a 14-mile walk, a day's walk, and you climb about 3,200 feet. The highest point is the Mount of Olives, and as you crest the Mount of Olives, the first thing you would have seen was the temple. The trip was not exactly what I would call an easy one. It was a dangerous trip, but Jesus makes this 14-mile trip probably in a single day, and as he finally gets near the end of the day to the city of Jerusalem, he cr- crests the Mount of Olives and sees the, it mo- maybe the most impressive building in all of the first century, Herod's Temple. Today, if you crest it, you see the Dome of the Rock, but from the Mount of Olives, you must go down about 150 feet and then back up 100 feet to get to the city of Jerusalem. It's a relatively steep climb. And as you descend, the stones are everywhere. And many tourists want to bring home a stone. Wouldn't it be cool to have a stone that almost cried out? Well, there's a problem with that theory because everybody has wanted a stone. The Israeli nation replants them every year because there's somebody taken. And so you're actually not getting a stone that was there in the first century. Our guide told a different story. Now, remember, when you go to Israel, the guides have some amazing stories and some of them are even true. I don't know if this is true or not, but as you descend the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is the oldest and largest cemetery in all of Palestine. It began with King David. In the first century, they estimate there would have been about 70,000 graves that littered the side. This is a picture from Jerusalem looking back at the Mount of Olives. You can see up in the upper left hand corner there the road that would have uh, not gone through the cemetery because then you would have defiled yourself. Our guide made this suggestion. What Jesus is actually saying, as Lazarus, John tells us, is right behind him, if you won't let them talk, I'll raise everybody from the dead and let them scream. We'll see who will shout the Pharisees say nothing because they knew he could if he wanted to. Sadly, as Jesus approaches the city, he does something no one expected. On his happiest day, verse 41 says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make For peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus weeps, I I think he's weeping for a couple reasons. The first is because of the ignorance of the people the phrase ends with you did not realize the time of your visitation that expression visitation was a very technical term in jewish language it spoke of the time that god arrived for judgment See, one of the things that has always perplexed me is how could thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people on Sunday scream, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and five days later be yelling crucify him. I think because they entirely misunderstood why Jesus came. See, Jesus had just performed some amazing miracles. He, he had given sight to the blind uh, a few days earlier. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. He, he had provided food. He, he was able to do all that you would want in a king. And what they were expecting, what they were wanting, what they were demanding is that Jesus enter the city of Jerusalem and throw off Roman rule. I, I mean, who could stand against the king that you kill his soldiers? He just raises them back from the dead. What hope would you have of standing against him? You would. And they were hoping for prosperity and power and comfort. If you continue reading chapter 19, do you know where it goes next? Jesus enters the temple and who does he throw out? Not the Romans, the religious leaders. Jesus didn't come to provide prosperity and power and comfort. He came to save our sins. But it's not just first century Jews that struggle with that. I think if most of us are honest, we struggle with it too. We want a God who makes everything okay. No pain, no problems. I struggle with that. We're going through a pretty big transition and and, and I truly believe that we're following God's will. But why doesn't he just make everything fall in place? Why does he put all of these obstacles in our way? Why does he not just have a house drop from heaven and say, this is your house, buy this one, move this date. move to this place, go to this school? Why do we have to struggle through all these? Come on, God, I'm doing what you asked me to. Why don't you just answer everything? It's not the way God works. In fact, God often allows us to go through hardship To knock off our edges. I I, I was sharing with Jeff. I I was doing a little bit of reading about uh, finishing a table. And I tried to put myself in the place of the table. I don't think the table probably really enjoys people cutting parts of him off. (laughs) And and then taking him and running him through a planer that uh, a bunch of him gets shaved off. And then uh, several different (laughs) grinds of, of sandpaper against him. The only way you get a beautiful table is to sand it repeatedly. May I suggest that God is far more concerned about my holiness than my happiness, than about my righteousness, than my comfort. And yet I fear in Christianity today we have bought this idea that God will give us everything we want. And some are walking away because God isn't doing what they want. The first century, the Jews who shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, when they found out that Jesus wasn't going to be their political and economic savior, they said crucify him. But I think they also misunderstood his demands. He says, even you had only known on this day what would bring peace. I kind of skipped over it, but if you go back to the beginning of chapter 18, there's this fascinating story of two men, a very religious man and a tax collector. The religious man is consumed with his goodness, the tax collector consumed with his sin, and he can't even lift his head towards heaven. All he can do is beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, only one of them went away forgiven. See, what God demands is the unconditional surrender of our lives. One of the more popular surgeries in our day today is open heart surgery. I don't know how much you know about open heart surgery. If you're going through it, you probably don't want to read much about it. But they cut your chest open. They hook you up to a machine and then the surgeon stops your heart. He cuts you open and takes some vein either from your arm or your leg. He literally bypasses the the artery that is unhealthy. He then sews you back up and hopefully you leave the hospital better than when you went in. My guess is the vast majority of people who go through open heart surgery know very little about the surgeon and yet they're quite Willing to put their life in his hands. Why? Because they've come to the conclusion if I don't do something, I'm going to die. May I suggest that as a beautiful picture of salvation? Unless I place my trust in Christ and give up all control, something much worse than death is going to happen. I trust you, God, and I submit completely. His demand was absolute surrender. But he also weeps because he understands the impending judgment that is about to happen. Jesus gives this amazing prophecy. He says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemy will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone unturned. Jesus is praying in probably about 33 AD. Fast forward three decades. The Jews will sense a weakness in Rome and they will rebel and Rome will send a general and they will kill that general. And in 66 AD, the full Roman army comes to Palestine. They build this huge fence around the city of Jerusalem. They starve the people for three years. And then in 70 AD, Titus enters the city in one of the most barbaric and one of the most brutal moments in all of Roman history. According to Josephus, there was 1.1 million. According to Tacitus, the Roman authority or historian, there was 660,000. I don't know how many there were, but we're told all but a handful of them were either butchered, crucified, sold as slaves, or taken to Rome to participate in the games where they would be killed by lions and tigers. And then they set out to destroy the city. Josephus shares in his account that at the end, you couldn't even tell a city ever existed. There was not a single stone left on another. Why? Because they didn't understand what was staring them in the face. And their rejection of Jesus cost them everything. But what blows my mind is Jesus understands that in five days these same people are going to be crying, crucify him! And yet his heart breaks for them. He weeps for the ones who will kill him. Because he knows the fate that lies ahead is unimaginable. I I come away with two questions. What have I done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Palm Sunday is a great Sunday to come to church, it's a wonderful chance to remember an incredibly familiar story. But ultimately, what have you done? With Jesus. It, it is my prayer, it is my hope that none of us here this morning have heard the stories and simply said, I'll get to that another day. The story of Palm Sunday is a horrifying story for me for this reason. Jesus said, There's a time when your chance of salvation ends. And you have no idea when that will be. See, God is patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish. But the day of the Lord will come. Don't put it off. Do it today. But my second question When was the last time you wept for your neighbor, your coworker, your family member? your enemy because they do not know the horror of an eternity apart from Christ do we care if we do what will we do about it I want to challenge you to do one thing this week would you prayerfully ask God to bring one person to you that you would do the scary uncomfortable thing of inviting to come with you next Sunday and hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and offers. But you are the only hope they have. Father, I I thank you for the chance to be here this morning. I I thank you for your arrival in Jerusalem. I, I thank you for your willingness to die. I thank you for the power of rising from the dead. I thank you for the chance that we have to receive the gift of eternal life and God I pray that we as a people would be excited to share that with as many as we can God I I pray that you would use each of us to bring someone to you for it is in Jesus name we pray amen
2: as we were reading that text this morning Luke, Luke chapter 19 I wanted to just read it one more time Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, If some of you follow the little footnotes in your Bible, I had a little letter B uh, name next to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And it said Psalm, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118 verse 26. And if you back up a few verses from there, it says, I will give you thanks for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our sight. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Would you stand with us as we uh, conclude our worship this morning?